Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for braving whatever it was you had to brave to be here. I know it's an important decision for a lot of folks. It's not something that we take lightly. But I believe that God provides for His people and offers them blessing, grace, mercy when they continue to demonstrate faith in Him. Let me ask a question. How many of you have ever experienced spiritual drought? You don't need to raise your hand because I know it's all of you. We all know what drought is here in the Central Valley. We have experienced it from time to time, well, more than time to time. Seems like every seven years or so we cycle around to a drought period. So we understand what it means to go through physical drought in the Central Valley. But this morning, I don't want to talk about physical drought. I want to speak on the subject of spiritual drought and what it means to experience spiritual drought. In order to emphasize this and to underscore the importance or the significance of it, I want to draw from an incident in the life of David. The life of David. When we experience spiritual drought, if you don't feel as close to the Lord as you normally do, if you don't feel the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life as you're accustomed to feeling that, if, you, if in your prayer time with the Lord you um, feel like your prayers are not getting above the ceiling, it could very well be that you're experiencing spiritual drought. If the joy of the Lord somehow seems to be um, absent uh, from your spirit, and you're wondering what in the world is wrong and what is going on, it could very well be that you're experiencing spiritual drought. And if you take the time to simply examine your life you will most likely find that there is a reason for your spiritual drought. These things just do not come upon us because they come to us for a reason. And oftentimes the reason is within us. It could be some foolish decision that we have made. It could be some sin that is in our life that is quenching the Holy Spirit. It could be something that we have ignored or overlooked in our walk with the Lord. But there's always a reason for it. Now, spiritual drought can be a blessing and it can be a curse. It all depends on how you deal with it. It all depends on what you do when, it, when the light bulb comes on and you realize that you're going through a very dry period in your relationship with the Lord. And as I said, I want to explore this with you in an incident that took place in David's life before he became the king of Israel. And the incident is found in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. But the backstory begins back in 1 Samuel chapter 26 and goes all the way through verse, uh, goes all the way through chapter 30. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. <coughs> 1 Samuel. And if you want, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 17, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 17. In the 10th chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul became the first king of Israel. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul became the first king of Israel. But he, hadn't, he, he wasn't a king for very long. In chapter 15, God took the kingdom away from Saul because of his disobedience. He did not act in a way that God desired the king of Israel to act. He took uh, liberties with the office of the priesthood. Uh, He did not obey God when God said uh, to do certain things. Saul uh, had a better idea. And so for these reasons, God said, you'll no longer be king in Israel. Now David, probably 16 or 17 years old at the time, David was living in Bethlehem with his family. And God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint Saul's successor, to anoint a new king in Israel. And so Samuel, the prophet, went to the house of Jesse. And uh, you know the story, after going through all of the brothers of David and God rejecting each one of them to be the new king, David was finally selected. And again, he was a teenager. He was only 16, maybe 17 years old at the time. But when King Saul heard about this, he became furious. He became very angry, and he began a four-year campaign to hunt David down and to kill him. He became very jealous. Even though God had rejected him as king over Israel, he was still king politically, not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of the people. And so he was going to do all he could do to keep David from ascending to the throne. Now in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, we're going to jump because there's a four-year period in here where Saul is after David and David is running from Saul. In chapter 26... David had taken refuge in a number of different places throughout southern Judea, out in the wilderness and in other places in and around southern Judea. But Saul was hot on his heels practically every single day. In chapter 26, we find that David has found himself in the wilderness of Judea near the town of Ziph near the town of Ziph, which is on the western side of the Dead Sea. And it was here in this place that he wrote the passage of Scripture that Pastor Chris read at the beginning of the service. Psalm chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. These words David wrote as he was hiding out in the area of Ziph. Well, the Ziphites had heard that David was in their area, so they notified King Saul that David was there. Immediately, King Saul mobilized his army down to the area of Ziph in order to catch him and to kill him. After Saul had mobilized his army there, David was watching from his hiding place. When night fell and all of the armies had Uh, all of the soldiers in the army had gone to sleep. David and one of his most trusted friends, Abishai, who was the captain of the mighty men of David, if you happen to know who those mighty men are, Abishai was the captain of the mighty men. He and David snuck silently into the camp and they found the place where Saul was sleeping. And rather than take his life, which is what Abishai wanted to do, David said, no, he is the anointed of God, and I'm not going to reach out my hand, and I'm not going to harm God's anointed. Even though God has rejected him as king, he is still the anointed of God. And so instead, David took Saul's battle spear and his canteen of water, and he and Abishai left silently. After leaving the camp, they had gone to a nearby hill, which was within distance of hearing David shout out, but still far enough away that if the soldiers started to advance, they had plenty of distance uh, uh, between them to outrun them. So they're on top of this hill, and it's still at night, and the camp 
fires are still burning, so there is enough light to see what's going on. And David shouts from the hill, and he calls out to General Abner, the chief of the soldiers of King Saul, and he begins to taunt Abner, telling him what a lousy general he is. And what a lousy group of soldiers they have because they're not able to protect their king from danger. And as David is shouting these words out, taunting General Abner, Saul wakes up and he recognizes the voice of David. And he comes forward and he begins to talk to David. He begins to shout out to David. David, at this moment, takes the opportunity to tell Saul of his sin, of all of the things that he is doing that brings shame to the name of God, how he has disobeyed God and why he's been rejected as king over God's people, and how he has spent those past four years in murderous jealousy, trying to hunt down God's newly anointed king. Conviction comes upon Saul and he realizes his sin and he calls out to David and he confesses his sin of jealousy and he promises David that he will no longer seek him out. He will no longer hunt him down. He will no longer seek to kill David. But David didn't trust Saul. He knew Saul too well. He knew Saul was one of those on-again, off-again Baptists. You know, when things were going okay, everything was hunky-dory. When things were not okay, he got mad. He got mad at God. He got mad at everybody around him. And, you know, he just, he would pout and he would swell up like a bullfrog and, you know, throw himself a big pity party. So David, in the years that he had spent with Saul and running from Saul, he knew that Saul could not be trusted. So what was he going to do? What was David going to do. And that's what our study this morning is really all about. Tom Peters wrote, if a window of opportunity appears, don't pull down the shade. If the window of opportunity appears, don't pull down the shade. Now, that may be true for Tom Peters. But in my mind, if an opportunity, if the window of opportunity opens up to you, you need to look through that window and see what lies beyond it. It may very well be that you need to pull that shade down and forget the opportunity. David was faced with an opportunity here. And he didn't really know what it was that he was supposed to do. And so he decided, after thinking about it, he decided that he was going to take his ragtag army of about 600 men and their families and David's two wives... And they were going to go and hide out in Philistine territory. Saul would never look for them in Philistine territory. Saul was not a warrior uh, that had any measure of aptitude as a soldier. He was king and he could lead, lead the army into battle, but he wasn't all that great as a commanding officer. David knew that if he had gone down into Philistine territory, Saul would never follow him there, and so he would be safe. And so he got his 600 men together and their families together, maybe a thousand plus people, and they trekked 25 miles to the northwest into Philistine territory. Now, politically, it was a smart move 
but spiritually it was the dumbest thing he could have ever done. And the reason it was not a smart move with regard to uh, his spiritual relationship to God was simply this. God, in all of the times that David was running from Saul, in the four years that David was trying to elude Saul, God had told David not to leave Judea. Stay in Judea. Don't go outside of the territory. Don't go outside of the borders. So, even though it may have been a politically smart move for David, spiritually, it was in defiance to God who told him to stay put in Judea. And this is when David's days of spiritual drought began. This is when David began to enter in to a period of spiritual drought. And the spiritual drought, dear friends, would last close to two years. I want you to note the steps that David took in this period of spirit that brought on this period of spiritual drought. So in chapter 27, 1 Samuel chapter 27, we'll focus our attention on verse 1 because it includes all of the steps that David took that brought on his spiritual drought. Number one, and, and as we look at these steps, I want you to note, uh, you, these are very common among Christian people as well. The principles are very, very common uh, for us uh, when we go into spiritual drought, if we examine our lives. But I want to underscore the thing that at any one of these steps, you have the decision to stop where you're at, to turn around and to come back to God. You can stop at step one, you could stop at step two, you could stop at step three, you could stop at step four. Any one of these steps, when you find yourself engaged in the principle in step one, you can stop right there, realize what you're doing, and turn back to God. Or if you're not that astute and you're down in step two and you realize the principle that's uh, acting in your life at that point in time, you can stop right there, realize what it is you've done, and turn back to God. Step number one, David saw his situation, and I want to emphasize that. Here's where spiritual drought really begins in the person of God. When you look more to your situation than you do to God. Now, we should consider our situations. I'm not saying that we should be ignorant of what's going on around us. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't overlook the things that are going on in our life. But David's focus at this point in time, his focus was totally on the situation that he was in. David's situation. He saw his situation from the inside looking out. When he should have... seen his situation from the inside looking up. He saw his situation from the inside looking out when he should have been looking at his situation from the inside looking up. Look at verse 1. David said what? David said what? David said to himself... David said to himself. David may have been a man after God's own heart, as Scripture says, but he often did not see his situations through God's eyes. He was a man after God's own heart, yes, but he was also a man who had feet of clay. Chuck Swindoll said, You won't find David praying even once in this chapter. And I'll go on to say, I'll expand that. When you read chapter 27 through chapter 30, or at the beginning of chapter 30 down through verse 6, in all of that time, in the 16 plus months that David was doing what he was doing, never once did he call upon the Lord. 
Chuck Swindoll says you won't find David praying even once in this chapter. In fact, David never looks up until much later. He wrote no psalms. He asked for no help. He simply pushed the panic button. Step one in a life that leads to spiritual drought. You look more to the situation and you consult yourself rather than looking to God and consulting him. Step number two. In his situation, David demonstrated no wisdom and he expressed no faith in God. He did not demonstrate wisdom and he did not express faith in God. Look at verse 1 again. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He said to himself, One of these days Saul is going to catch up to me. One of these days Saul is going to have his bloodlust satisfied. What is wisdom? We've said this over and over again. Wisdom is knowledge put to good use. Wisdom is knowledge put to good use. Faith is obedience in action. And David exercised neither one of these during the entire 16-month period. David believed that his situation was bigger than himself... And that situation was bigger than God. He had convinced himself that he really was going to die at the hand of Saul. He believed that Saul would not honor his vow. He believed that Saul was so vindictive. He believed that Saul was so uh, obsessed with his bloodlust to get rid of David that David couldn't hide long enough before falling into Saul's hands. Now if wisdom is knowledge put to good use, and David didn't exercise wisdom, how do we understand that? How do we know that? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel picked David to be the next king of Israel. Samuel said to them, God has brought me to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. And David, you're that new king. So Samuel told David, you're the next king of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, chapters 18 through 20, in his friendship with Jonathan, the son of King Saul, numerous times Jonathan expressed to David that he was going to be the next king of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 30, Abigail, the wife of Naboth, Abigail told David, that he was going to be the next ruler over Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 20, Saul himself told David that he was going to be the next king. Over and over and over again, people were telling David that he was going to be the next king, and one of them was the prophet of God. And I find it odd that in many situations, David was confident in God and not in himself. But here, David is more confident in himself than he is in God. Why is that? Why is it we can find ourselves in such situations that we will believe more in ourselves, our abilities, our knowledge, our understanding of the situation, than we will believe in God? But we do. And this deepens, it deepens the morass of our spiritual drought. I know that's a contradiction in terms. It deepens the spiritual drought that we're experiencing. Step number three. Rather than to rely on God, which David had already broken fellowship with now, but rather than rely upon God, he resigned himself 
to fate. He resigned himself to fate. I know that Doris Day was a very popular actress, very beautiful woman, lovely voice. The only really, the, really the only song I can remember about Doris Day singing was "Que Sera Sera." That's a song of fate, fatalism. What will be, will be. And some of us, from time to time, embrace that same attitude. It's not anymore what, you know, what will be, what will be. The, the, the words today, well, it is what it is. We hear that quite a bit, do we not? It is what it is. That's a fatalistic attitude. A Christian should never have that kind of attitude. David, rather than relying upon God, resigned himself to fate. This is the situation that I'm facing. This is the one who is out after me. This is where I'm at in life. Might as well just sit back and let it happen. Do what I got to do. Go where I got to go. Be what I got to be in order to somehow, way, get through all of this. Look at verse 1 again. David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. I, I read the verse over and over and over, and it, I, I just I sit amazed. I stand amazed at the decision that David makes and how he convinces himself that God can't do anything about his situation. When over and over and over again, God had proven to David that he was greater than any situation David, David ever faced. In essence, he was saying the situation is greater than I can handle. God has deserted me. I can't run from my troubles anymore. The best thing to do is hide out among the Philistines, the enemies of God. The enemies of God. Step four. He rationalized his actions from his feelings and not from his faith. Now what you don't understand, David still had faith in God. He just wasn't using it. He wasn't just, he, he, he wasn't acting on it. He allowed his feelings to begin to control his faith. He began to follow after his feelings in life rather than to follow after his faith in life. Look again at verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. He rationalized the situation. The only way I can get away from Saul is to go to a place where Saul will not follow me, and that is into the enemy camp. I can hear David saying in his heart and in his mind, Woe is me. Woe is me. I have no other alternative but to go into the camp of the enemy. Nowhere here does he remember the word of God, Do not leave Judea. Someone said, Quote, at this point in his life, David is a clear illustration of a man who is a believer on the inside, but on the outside he looks just like a non-believer because of the way he is living. At this point in his life, David is a clear illustration of a man who is a believer on the inside, but on the outside he looks just like a non-believer because of the way he is living. Now I want you to remember, in David's last meeting with Saul, when David was up on the hillside and Saul was down in the camp, 
In his last meeting with King Saul, David was given the opportunity to trust in the Lord as he had done so many times before. He faced an open door to the next step of spiritual growth and to the next level of spiritual service. But he chose not to do it. And dear friends, it's always a choice. It's always a choice. David had the opportunity to trust in God. If God told him not to leave Judea, he had to believe that God was going to protect him while he was in Judea, but he chose not to believe that. He chose to take his marbles and go to a land occupied by God's enemies. Lesson number one. Lesson number one. If you're not walking in, if you're, excuse me, if you are walking in step with the world, you're not walking with God. If you're walking in step with the world, you're not walking in step with God. King Achish. Really, it's Achish. King Achish of Gath welcomed David and his soldiers and their families, believing now that David was an outcast in Israel, believing that David was now an outlaw. And he thought in his mind, since David can't serve in Israel anymore, maybe he'll serve with us. Maybe he'll become our ally. And so he gave David and his men and their families quarter in the town of Ziklag. And there David and his army and their families lived in the town of Ziklag for 16 months. During that time, David made raids. He and his men made raids on Philistine towns and cities that once belonged to Israel but now were occupied by Philistine families and Philistine soldiers. And David, as they would raid these towns, they would kill everyone and everything. He wanted no one getting word back to King Achish that David was raiding the towns that belonged to the Philistines. David would slaughter everyone, but he would keep the spoils for himself. And when King Achish asked for a report every now and again, David, how you doing? Down in Ziklag, how are the, how are the men doing? How are the families? David would lie through his teeth to King Achish. Everything's fine. Everything is well. There was some suspicion in the mind of King Achish that David was you know, you know, not going to be a, a full-fledged fellow to the Philistines. And, but David assuaged his suspicions by sharing his plunder with King Achish. And so King Achish would go away thinking, yeah, David's a, he's a good egg. David's a good man. You know, he, he's completely cut ties with Israel. He's our guy now. He will be... A very formidable fellow with us as a Philistine. David was digging the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Risking his life and risking the life of his men. And that's what happens when you're in spiritual drought. Quite often often you'll make decisions that will cause you to dig your own grave. David lied to King Achish. David was killing Philistines left and right putting himself and his men in danger. But all of this is going to come back to haunt David. He's not going to be able to get away with it. In Numbers chapter 20, uh, excuse me, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, the scripture tells us you can be sure that your sins will find you out. In Hosea chapter 8 and verse 7, scripture tells us you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. David was not going to get off scot-free in his disobedience to the Lord. You see, many years earlier, many years earlier when Saul was king in good standing with God, Samuel went to tell the king that because of his disobedience, God was going to take the kingdom away from him, that God had rejected him because of his disobedience. But Saul tried to bargain with God through the prophet Samuel. Saul said, 
Look at all of the, all of the spoils that I took in, in, the, in the towns and the cities that I uh, conquered. And I'll give them all to God. I'll give them all to you. He tried to bargain with God, trying to uh, maintain his position as king. But in 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23, Samuel responded to King Saul, saying, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. In other words, Samuel was telling Saul, it doesn't matter that you were able to, to defeat the Amalekites and to uh, gain all of the spoils, the riches from defeating the Amalekites. And it doesn't matter if you want to offer them to God. You can't bargain with God like that. God has told you what he expects of you as a king and you have disobeyed God. You've been rejected. To obey is better than sacrifice. And David is going to find this same principle at work in his own life. Now God rejected King Saul as king because of his disobedience. God is not going to reject David for his disobedience. Why? Well, that's the grace of God. But he's not going to allow David to escape the consequences of his disobedience. King Achish was so impressed with David that he made him his personal bodyguard. And the hole gets deeper. Now David is going to have to attend to, to, to King Achish day in and day out. He's not going to be able to carry on the raids anymore. And he's not going to be able to make plans with his soldiers anymore. He's going to have to be close to King Achish from here on out. Then when the Philistines decided to go to war with the Israelites, King Achish said, David, bring your men along and you will march with us as we fight against the Israelites. The hole gets deeper. Now what is David going to do? Certainly he's not going to muster up his men and fight against the army of God. Certainly he's not going to go out to battle and slaughter his own brothers. But he can't tell that to King Achish. King Achish might turn the sword on him. What is David going to do? Lesson number two. Success in your own eyes and in the eyes of others does not necessarily mean success with God. Success in your own eyes and success in the eyes of others does not necessarily mean success with God. David was a good leader of men. He was a good soldier. He was a great warrior. And he was carrying out these blitzkrieg campaigns against Philistine towns. And he was eliminating anybody and everybody that could report back to King Achish. He was smart. He was powerful. He was confident in himself. And his men looked up to him as being a wise and worthy leader. King Achish looked upon David as being a great man, a great warrior, having all of this plunder that he could share with King Achish. David was great in his own eyes. David was great in the eyes of his men. David was great in the eyes of King Achish. But he was still a wayward prodigal son in the eyes of God. I want you to note three things about David during his spiritual drought. Number one, David never consulted God in anything that he did in those 16 months that he lived down in Ziklag. Never consulted God on anything that he did. Number two, to King Achish and David's own soldiers, he was a skillful warrior and he was a brave leader. But to the Lord God, he was still a disobedient 
and a rebellious prodigal son. Number three, David tested God's love and faithfulness for 16 months. David tested God's love and faithfulness for 16 months, which is something we should never, ever willingly do. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, Scripture tells us, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And in case it didn't get across to God's people, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 7. He says it to Satan. You will not put the Lord God to the test. But for 16 months, David was putting God to the test in his love for David and in his faithfulness to David. David foolishly put himself and his men and their families in a situation where God had to rescue them again and again and again. But that's what sin does in a person's life. When you allow sin to come in and take hold of you and to control your thinking and to control the motivations behind what you do, you're putting God as a child of God, you're putting God to the test. And you're opening your life and everyone who's concerned about you, you're putting their lives at risk. And that's something we should never do. As the Philistine army mobilized to the place where they were going to carry on battle against the Israelites, David and his men had to march in the rear guard to protect King Achish. What were they going to do when they got to the battlefield? How were they going to get out of this terrible situation? Well, God is still on his throne. And even though God did not speak to David, and David did not speak to God, God was going to rescue David one more time. What did he do? He put suspicion and he put doubt in the commanders of the Philistine army. As they were marching to the field of battle, the commanders of the Philistine army came to Ziklag and said, came to Achish, King Achish, and said, we can't trust David. How do we know that when we're in the thick of battle, David's not going to turn on us? David and his men are going to raise the sword against us. How do we know that he's not going to defect from us and join his brothers and slaughter us on the field of battle? King Achish said, no, 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 no. David won't do that. David has proven himself to me. I'm confident that David is our ally, not our enemy. But the commanders said, well, we don't trust him. You send him back to Ziklag. And so King Achish dismissed David and his men to go back to Ziklag where their families were. David got himself out of a jam, saved by the bell. But it wasn't apart from God's intervention. God put the doubt in the hearts and the minds of the commanders. Lesson number three, decisions we make in our own best interest often dishonor God and put others at risk. Decisions that we make in our own best interest often dishonor God and put others at risk. This does not mean that we're not smart people. And this does not mean that we cannot make good decisions. But any time a Christian, male or female, any time a man, woman, boy or girl that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ makes a decision without consulting God, we put ourselves and everyone else around us at risk. We may think that we have a better way, but only God sees all things. Only God sees what lies ahead down the road. We may anticipate and we may plan for, but only God truly knows what the next day holds. And so when we make our plans and then decide to carry out our plans without consulting the Lord God in prayer and in meditation, we put ourselves and everyone else around us at risk. Now I want you to note 
This is where the sermon begins. <laughs> I heard some groans. I want you to turn to chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. After walking three days and 55 miles back to Ziklag, David faced yet another crisis. Look at the first five verses. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David, excuse me, now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. When David and his men left the army of the Philistines and go back to Ziklag, David didn't realize that he had left the town completely unprotected. All of the soldiers were with him. There was no one there to guard the town. David realized that he had put the families of his men at risk. They were left behind with no one to guard them, to defend them. And now the Amalekites have come in and have burned the town to the ground. And the men, women, and children that were left, the old men and the women and the children that were left, are now gone. And they don't know where the Amalekites were taking them. Scripture doesn't tell us where. It just said that they took them off. They could have gone anywhere. David didn't know. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. David was a great leader. Those 600 men admired him. In that core group of men, there were those who were David's mighty men. They had made an allegiance to David that they would rather die than to see their king threatened. And so these men loved David and they believed in David and they marched for David and they did whatever David told them to do. But now they've come home to their wives and children and the town has been destroyed and the families have been taken by the Amalekites. And David, it's your fault. You had no business taking us up to be a part of the army of the Philistines. They're our enemies for crying out loud. What are we doing marching with them? They're the enemy of God. Why are we marching with them against our own brothers? And you've left our families completely unprotected. David, this is your fault. And now they were turning on David. In verse 6, David was greatly distressed. The word distressed means narrowed in or hemmed in. And the idea here is David had nowhere to go. He had nowhere to look for help. He was hemmed in. He couldn't go back to Achish because he was under suspicion. He couldn't go back to Judea because King Saul was still there. He couldn't trust his men because now they're turning on him. Where could David go? What could David do? Lesson four. Spiritual drought ends when we realize our sin, repent of it, and turn back to the Lord. Spiritual drought ends 
when we recognize our sin, repent of it, and turn back to the Lord. And that's exactly what David did. Look again at verse 6, the last clause. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Some of us would think in a situation like that, David was truly at rope's end. There was nothing else David could do. He had made uh, King Saul uh, upset at him, mad at him. He had made King Achish upset and mad at him. His own men were upset and mad at him. Go ahead and put the gun to your head. Get it over with. There's no place else you can run and hide. There's nothing else you can do. But it was then that David remembered God. Mother used to say, when you've dug the hole so deep, the only direction you can look is up. Then that's where you look. When you've dug the hole so deep that the only direction you can look is up, then that's where you look. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's what David did. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And I can hear God say to David, One more time, David. One more time. Call on me one more time. In the past, David had learned to wait upon God. In Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3, David wrote, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. David said, I remembered the Lord. I learned to wait upon God. Now I need to return to him. But it had been 16 months. 16 months. That's too long. Surely God will have rejected me as well. Surely God will have turned away from me after I have disobeyed and lived in rebellion for 16 months. David had walked away from God and into a spiritual Siberia. But now he would find how sweet it can be to draw near with confidence, as the writer of Hebrews says, to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. E.J. Rawlings wrote these words to a song we used to sing. Are your crosses too heavy to carry? Are your crosses too heavy to carry? And burdens too heavy to bear? Are there heartaches and tears and anguish? And there's no one who seems to care? Are there shadows of deep disappointment and trusts that have proven untrue? Has the darkness of night settled round you? Has your hope and your faith wavered too? Has the storm overshadowed your sunshine and lost all attraction for you? Have the dreams that you cherished been broken? Is your soul filled with bitterness too? Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. He's the friend who always cares and understands. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you will find him. And you'll know him by the nail prints in his hands. Beloved, if you are a child of God, there will be times when you give up on God and you enter into a spiritual Siberia, a spiritual drought. But know this, God never gives up on you. Never. 
He is like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He stands every day looking out over the horizon to see his prodigal child come home. He never gives up on his children. Don't ever forget that. Trust in the Lord, Solomon said, with all of your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Lesson number five, and I'll close. David called upon the Lord, and he used what God had given him in that day and time, the Urim and the Thummim, in order to understand God's will. And God spoke to him. David went before the priest and God spoke to him and told him, go after the Amalekites. Go after them and defeat them and rescue your families. Lesson five. When God speaks to your situation, this time it's better to obey him. Several years earlier, God told David, don't ever leave Judea. But David disobeyed him. David saw the situation and said to himself, rather than speaking to God. Now David is speaking to God. And God is saying, go after them. Get your families back. But Lord, they're a greater army than these 600 men. God said, go after them and get your families back. David thought, these are men of war and they have all kinds of swords and spears and and, and arrows and bows. God said, go after them and get your families back. David went, found the Amalekites, slaughtered all of them, rescued his family and the families of his men, and they went home. We all experience periods of drought at one time or another. Spiritual drought. We need to remember that just as in a physical drought relief comes from above, so also in a spiritual drought relief comes from above. We need to look up and we need to call upon God who is able to rescue us from that spiritual drought. If we hold fast to our faith in the Lord and trust in His wisdom to see us through the issue that we're facing, it will mean greater spiritual growth for us personally. And it will open the door of opportunity to go to the next level of spiritual ministry in our lives. And we will also become a very powerful witness to other people of what it means to trust in God when the chips are down. And I pray that we will do this by God's grace in the days that are ahead of us. Let us pray. Stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, you have brought us thus far And we have no doubt and no fear that you will continue to lead us all the way to the end. When your will and purposes are accomplished in us, when all that you would have us to do here in this place, in this community, will have been achieved. But until that time, no matter what we face in this life, no matter the issues, no matter the problems, no matter the burdens, no matter the concerns, no matter how dark the days grow for us, keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Keep our heart, our affections firmly fixed on Him. Keep our feet firmly rooted in the truth of Your Word. Lord, may we be an example to this community of a God who loves and who lives within His people and empowers them to do His work, no matter come what may. Bless Your people, Lord, as we leave the house. And as we go, may we go in confidence and may we go in assurance 
that you are the captain of our faith. You are the one who will lead us to the next victory. May we face it with joy in our spirit. May we face it with open hands, open heart, open eyes to see, to hear, and to do what it is you would have us to do. All to the honor and to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord and a great new week. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.